looks as though you are live on Facebook, and so therefore you must be live as well on Sermon Audio. All right, we're going to Okay, so you're telling me I can get going here. Yeah. No, I haven't seen a thumb. Right. There's one thumb. It's a single thumb day, so that's not terrible. Okay, very fast. Before I get started today, winter is coming in Alaska. It's really cold today, about 43 degrees. It's raining. It's really bad. And Lori and I have got to get ready for winter. we got doors to put in, all kinds of things. So we're going to be gone until September the 12th. So this is our last uh, lecture until September the 12th. And hopefully... Are you on? I'm not on. You're right. Okay, i got to start over again then. No, you don't. It's okay. You can pick that up. Did it? Okay. Well, in any event, uh, we're not going to be back until September the 12th so that we can do all the things we need to do, get firewood and get doors in and get the house ready to go through the winter. So that's what's going to happen. It happens every year. We just don't do it as much as we need to do it this year because Lori's not keeping up her end. Mm -hmm. I'm full of vitality except for kidney failure and heart failure. (laughs) uh, Anyway, okay, so enough of that. August the 8th, 2021, lecture discussion number 147 on the book of Joel, Daniel, Revelation, Ecclesiastes, Job, 1 Kings 13, 2 Kings 23. Today will be the fifth lecture in the Immortality of Animal series, or Immortality of Animals series. Obviously, the subject requires more than five hours. This will be the fifth hour. So, uh, once again, my efforts are manifestly deficient. and, and, and that's the nature of Scripture. The Bible is inexhaustibly complicated, complex. It's interconnected. All attempts to reach finality is will rupture. You just aren't able to ever do it. No subject can be can be ended. Nothing can be enclosed. Scripture is the product of infinity, of the infinite one. Anyone who suggests that they have full expertise, a complete understanding of even a single truth, a single doctrine, uh, of the Bible. Anybody that says that or trumpets that is badly mistaken are, are delusional. They don't know what they don't know. We see through a dark glass dimly, the Bible says. The best we can do is see in part First Corinthians thirteen twelve. Those are the rules. And you have to have an understanding of of yourself here. So when that's the, so what else can there be for now in other words in this time i'm not going to be able to ever finish anything eventually god writes it on our hearts right and we get it all but for now we see dimly and in part so to repeat here a little bit the, the author of scripture is the one who stretches out the heavens like a curtain who clothes himself in light who laid the foundations of the earth psalm 104 he sits above the circle of the earth isaiah 40:22 he is the everlasting one he is outside of time he is the creator god of all things the knower of all things he's the first and the last the nations of men are the small dust on the scale uh, Isaiah 40, 28, 41, 4, Revelation 1, 17 through 18, Isaiah 40, 15. So you have to have that understanding when you go into the Bible. This is who you're dealing with. And yes, this is a disclaimer of sorts. I know my inherent, inherent considerable weaknesses. I'm impeded. I have impediments. There's only so much I can accomplish. As of today, in all my years of so-called religious career, I've yet to finish anything. You guys know that. I've never finished a thing. 
it's, it is my expectation that tomorrow will maintain. It'll conform to all the previous pattering that I've had. Not, <coughs> I should say puttering too. The best indicator of future behavior is past behavior. I believe that's absolutely true. Therefore, lecture number five here, 147, will not come close to completing the immortality of animals. Is that, is that a phone call? Is it for me? No, it's Lori. Oh, it's Lori. She's not getting something, huh? Okay. Hi, Lori. Lori has to hide in the, in the office with the dogs. Otherwise, they attack Terry. She, so, so, again, to, to go back a second. This fifth in the series will not come close to completing the immortality of animals. That's the test of Ecclesiastes 3.18 in its essence. In effect, do you know that animals are immortal, everlasting, ruah, nefesh, shayah, beings? Do you know that? That's what 3.18, what Solomon is trying to get through. Now, eventually, I've got to do 3.22 and finish that. And again, obviously not today. But the plan was to demonstrate just how much material is necessary to digest, to understand that animals are immortal, uh, to even begin the discussion of it. You, you've got all of this information that you have to wade yourself through. And, and that, of course, is fantastic. And, and that's what I'm trying to do, is, is put as much of that material in front of you as I can. And that remains the plan. So off we go to Numbers 22, which is Balaam. Balaam is on the board over here. You can't see the board if you're listening to Worldwide Christian Radio, but we have a board, and Balaam is on it, and Balak is on it. And here's one of the reasons why. Whenever you're discussing the uh, three kingdoms, you're going to end up at Balaam. Uh, so, okay, we do we have to stop? Well, no, we're, we're, are we okay? Having trouble on Facebook, that's all. Oh, Facebook is failing again. Huh? Yeah, really so. They changed, they changed everything this week. Well, there we go. huh? So those of you who are watching on Facebook, you're not watching on Facebook, I assume, huh? Yeah. Okay, well, that's unfortunate. But that's not, not unusual here, huh? Okay, so with that said, um, we have, we're, at, we're at Balaam, number 22. Balaam the donkey, the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord comes to see Balaam and the donkey. Now, why does he do that? That's Jesus Christ himself. The angel of the Lord is Jesus Christ himself. And there's no time to read all of Numbers 22. There's never enough time. Uh, so I'm going to have to do a synopsis, and that'll have to suffice. Balaam was obviously a substantial diviner who was able to charge sizable fees for his divinations. He was sought after. They thought he had lots of power. Uh, and why they thought that remains to be discussed. Balak was the king of the Moabites who saw this nation of Israel, this innumerable army coming across towards him, the army of Israel slaughtering king after king as they swept through the land. That's what Balak saw, and, and the Canaanites fell, and the Amorites fell, and Balak assumed that the Moabites were going to be next. They were doomed, and Balak was wrong about that. He was in error. Moabites were descendants of Lot. Israel was forbidden to harm them, Deuteronomy 2.9, Deuteronomy 2.16-19. through 19. They could not go after the Moabites. God prohibited it. 
And if he knew, if he knew the edict from God that was given to Moses in Deuteronomy 2.9, then Balak's fears were completely unjustified. So you have to think that he didn't know it or he didn't believe it. But he intends to go get Balaam. He has a reason for getting Balaam. But in any event, like I said, he was not a student of Deuteronomy. And of course, obviously, this is at a time when that was not available. But again, um, Moses was instructed that Israel could not harass Moab or, nor engage them in battle. God would not give Israel any of their land. The Moabite land was given to God by God. I'm sorry, given by God to Lot's descendants, and it's in stone. Could not be violated. And that raises heaps of questions. Why did God not allow Israel to contend or seize the land of the descendants of Lot? Nor were they permitted to engage in battle with the Edomites. Who were the Edomites? The Edomites were the progeny of Esau. So you can't go after the land of the descendants of Lot, and you cannot go after the land that are the descendants of Esau. The same is said for the Ammonites. Deuteronomy 2, 19 through 23. They, they were Anakim. They were giants. You can't go after their land either. God set those aside. You have to ask why. But obviously Balak, Balak did not know this, any of this. It's a great mystery. God has blessed Esau, Lot, and giants. We should be curious about that. And if only we had time, but as you know, we never have time. For today, just recognize that this is the backstory, the substrate, the foundation for Balak and Balaam. If Balak knew he was spared, why did he pay Balaam to curse Israel? So you have to assume that he didn't know he was spared, and so therefore he wanted to pay Balak to curse Israel. Balak knew about the Amorites, Numbers 22.2, and the Moabites were sick. His people were sick with dread, exceedingly afraid of Israel over what Israel had done to the Amorites. Why didn't they, though, rejoice over the reprieve granted to the Edomites? As Israel is coming across the land, they're going to know, every, there's a, obviously there's a tremendous amount of communication here. You, more, much more than you can imagine. You see an army coming towards you, what's your response? What should Balak have done? He would have sent out some kind of reconnaissance. So he knew that the Edomites, the, the descendants of Esau, had not been touched. And, and one would assume that Moabites knew the relationship between Esau and Jacob. And Lot and Abraham. If Balak knew about Lot and Abraham, then the Genesis 12, 1 through 3 principle must have been known. And, and to repeat, there's infiltration spies being a, comic ta a common tactic in these times. Twelfth, one through three is, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and curse him who curses you. Those are God's words to Abraham. And that principle, the twelve, uh, Genesis 12, one through three principle is still in effect today. All that aside. That has to be discussed at some point. We don't have time today because we never have time. Balak pays Balaam to curse Israel. Obviously not a sound plan considering Genesis 12, 1 through 3. God comes to Balaam. Christ comes to Balaam. Same thing. Tells Balaam, Numbers 22, 12. You shall not curse Israel for they are blessed. Again, God says to Balaam, 
Genesis 12, 1 through 3. The Genesis 12, 1 through 3 principle. So, when God tells Balaam that, now think about it. God comes to Balaam and tells him that. How powerful is this Balaam guy? Why does God come to him? How complicated is this guy? He is incredibly difficult to understand. I'll tell you that right off the bat here. But because God comes to Balaam, Balaam turns down the money. And Balak is desperate now. And he sends a second delegation, this time with a great amount of riches, a fortune. Balak's willing to make Balaam rich beyond measure if he will curse Israel. And again, it, that would invoke the Genesis 12, 1 through 3. So why is Balak trying to do this? Does he know about Genesis? He's a descendant of Lot. That makes him a descendant of Abraham. Does he know what God said? I killed that fly. Did you see that? Boom. Got it right there, out of the air. No, I did not. <laughs> but I feel good about it anyway. We call that the, the American academic system now. I don't know anything that I really did, but I still feel good about it. So, what could possibly go worse in our academic f- facilities than that? But, ba- what, what is Balak doing he, if he knows about Abraham and he knows about Lot, he should know about Esau, then he, should be, he shouldn't be feared, filled with dread. But for some reason, he thinks God is going to wipe him out with the Israeli army. So he wants Balaam. He doesn't want to attack. Uh-oh, we have a problem. You. Uh-oh, the phone is off. Why? Things just went dead on us. Okay. Yeah, it looks like it's... Let's try this again. Okay. I don't know why things went dead, but things went dead. Could be the other day. You're in the house. Could be something else. The rain. So I thought we played it on the rain. It won't live again. Uh, we'll see how that works out. Okay. So have is everything I've said to just page four is gone? I don't know. No, just I, keep going. We got recorded on the podium recorder. Um, I'm not sure what else we can do. Okay. It's, re- it's reconnected now. Okay, so now we're back on Facebook. Okay, so I should tell people that I haven't got that fly yet. Missed it again. I am on page four. Uh, Unfortunately, we've had technical difficulties here. And I don't know, the audio is somewhere. Is that correct, Dave? We will have the audio for them. so hopefully the audio and the and the video will be reconciled. But uh, once again, we have had difficulty. That's uh, too bad. So that makes this something. Well, uh, worldwide Christian radio can probably uh, have all the audio though. Yes. Oh, the, oh yeah. Everything's still recording just fine. Okay, except um, for the videos. Right. So if you're catching, if you're here with me at this point, what I've done so far is four pages of Balak and Balaam. In Numbers 22, I'll read it all here in a minute, and that that will help you. But I've tried to establish that something's going askew here. Balak intends to pay Balaam to curse Israel, and that is in violation of Genesis 12, 1 through 3. And Balaam wants this money, but he's decided not to take it because God comes to Balaam and says, don't take the money. And so Balaam turns down the money and Balak, then King Balak says, okay, I got to send another delegation, this time with a far greater treasure. And I want Balaam to curse Israel. And 
And that, of course, would cause the penalty that God would curse Balaam. So why does Balak... Balak is not going to curse Israel. Have you noticed that? He wants to pay Balaam to do it. And Balaam turns it down. So he doubles the money, actually probably uh, ten times the money. And uh, that, of course, will result in what for Balaam if he curses Israel? God will curse him. How serious of a penalty is that? It seems to me that Balak is intending to kill Balaam. And Balaam is, is, is going to take the money and do this. I know what you're thinking. What does this have to do with the immortality of animals? Because that's the current subject here. Um, the immortality of animals. And of course, also in, involved in Genesis 12, 1 through 3 is the political or geopolitical climate of our culture here, of, of our current time. <clears throat> so let's repeat a little bit. Repeating the Genesis 12, 1 through 3 principle. When you curse Israel, God will curse you. When God curses you, you will be cast into the lake of fire. That's what he means when he says curses you. It isn't a bad day. When you, when you curse his people Israel, he will curse you. And that is the second death. Balak is willing to put Balaam into that jeopardy. And why is he doing that? And he thinks that he can, he can convince him with money and he ultimately ends up to be somewhat correct. And you would think that Genesis 12, 1 through 3 would, would be a, a deterrent. Anybody who reads that would go, I am not going to curse the nation of Israel in any time of, throughout the history of mankind. But that's not so, is it? Because our own country today is filled with people who curse Israel every single day. Relentless haters of the nation of Israel have become the highest political, in the highest political office of this country in my lifetime. I can think right off the bat of three that hated Israel and cursed them in my lifetime, which I was born right after the Civil War, as you know. So I went back quite a ways. I could rant here, but we have a, a great bevy of political leadership that hates this country, and they are in danger. Genesis 12, 1 through 3. This boycott, divest, I can't remember the other one. Uh, sanction. That movement is cursed. If you're part of that movement, I urge you to pay attention to the Genesis 12, 1 through 3 principle. Anyway, Balaam wants the money. This is a huge pile of money, but says he doesn't want it. But he wants it. And God gives Balaam permission to go to Balak, but never to curse Israel. And so Balaam goes, saddles his female donkey. His intention is to take the treasure, which requires that he curse Israel. He can't take the treasure without cursing Israel. Um, And, of course, that reminds you of Genesis 3, 4, right? Take Take the fruit and what happens? You invoke the curse. Take the take the money and you curse Israel. Genesis 2.17. Just saying. All of that to get to the immortality of animals. Hopefully you will agree eventually the aforementioned was necessary to explain the female donkey's thought process. And, and notice I said the female donkey's thought process. It's not an accident. I didn't misspeak here. It's no slip of the tongue. It's not a euphemism. It's not a metaphor. It's not a representation. It's not a simile. Uh, the female donkey, the Ruach Nefesh Shaya that she is, possesses a logic system. She has understanding. 
Now you have to ask yourself, how did that happen? We have a tendency to call animals dumb in this country. Mm. Dumb animals. That is in contrary to Scripture. We need to read this incredible account because it's literally true. This actually happened. There was actually a Balak. There was a Balaam. There was a female donkey. Uh, They said and did these things. So let's read this. It takes a little while, but it's it's, uh, absolutely an amazing story. Okay. God came to Balaam at night and said to him, If the men come to call, you rise up and go with them, but only the word which I speak to you that you shall do. So Balaam rose up in the morning, saddled his donkey, and went with the princes of Balak of Moab. Then God's anger was aroused because he went. Wait a minute. He said he could go, but now he's mad that he went. Something is is involved here. And the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as an adversary against him. To repeat, that is Jesus Christ himself, God in the flesh, infinite, almighty, omniscient, omnipotent God in the flesh, standing in the way of Balaam. That's who comes. And his two servants who were with him. Now the donkey saw the angel of the Lord. Let me repeat that. Now the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in his way, or in the way with his drawn sword in his hand. And the donkey turned aside out of the way and went into the field. So Balaam struck the donkey to turn her back onto the road. Then the angel of the Lord stood in the narrow path between the vineyards with a wall on his side on this side and a wall on that side. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she crushed Balaam's foot against the wall. So he struck her again. Then the angel of the Lord went further and stood in a narrow place where there was no way to turn either to the right hand or to the left. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, let me repeat, and when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she laid down under Balaam so that Balaam's anger was aroused and he struck the donkey with his staff. Then the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey, and she said to Balaam, What have I done to you, What, what that you have struck me these three times? And Balaam said to the donkey, Because you have abused me. Actual word there is mocked, but I'll get to that in a minute. I wish there was a sword in my hand, for now I would kill you. So the donkey said to Balaam, Am I not your donkey on which you have ridden ever since I was yours? To the, I became yours to this day. Was I ever disposed? accustomed to do this to you and he said no then the lord opened then then the lord opened balaam's eyes and he saw the angel of the lord standing in his way with his drawn sword in his hand and he bowed his head and fell flat on his face and the angel of the lord said to him why have you struck your donkey these three times behold I have come out to stand against you because your way is perverse before me from from me these three times. If she had not turned aside from me, surely I would have also killed you by now and let her live. And Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned for I did not know you stood in the way against me. Now, therefore, uh, If I am evil in your sight, is the actual literal term, I will turn back. In other words, I am evil in your sight, and so I will turn back. 
Then the angel of the Lord said to Balaam, go with the men, but only the word that I speak to you and you shall speak. In other words, you can't curse Israel. And that means you don't get what? You don't get the money. So Balaam went with the princes of Balak. Now, when Balak heard that Balaam was coming, he went out to meet him at the city of Moab, which is on the border of the Arnon, the boundary of the territory. Okay. Well, I should actually read. Ultimately, he says this in verse 38. And Balaam says to Balak, look, I have come to you. Now, have I any power to say anything? Have I any power at all to say anything? It's a rhetorical question. He tells Balak, I got nothing here. I never had nothing. I just come in for the money because you're an idiot. But now I got problems. Okay. Immediately, it is critical to know that the angel of the Lord is God himself, Jesus Christ. If you try to read this story and you don't know that, then you you might as well just shut the Bible and go back and read something else because you're wasting your time. You have to know that Jesus Christ, the angel of the Lord, God himself, that's who we're talking about. Christ is the one in whom time and all things consist. Colossians 1, 15 through 18, all energy, space, matter, and time are inside of him. He is infinite God. The angel of the Lord is a, a, a title of the second person of the Elohim, the us of Genesis 1.26, Proverbs 30, verse 4. What is the name of the second person, the Son of God? The name of the Son of God is Yeshua, which is salvation. That's his name. Jesus Christ ultimately is a, is a, Christ is a Messiah, messianic term. Jesus is Yeshua, salvation Messiah, our saving Messiah. So to start with, Christ is the one who searches the hearts and the minds of all men. So he knows everybody's thoughts. He's omniscient God, Revelation 2.23. He knows the mind, he knows the heart of Balaam, duh. And he came and stood in the way of Balaam as an adversary against him. So something about what Balaam was thinking uh, caused Christ to come with a sword. The obvious implication is obvious, right? Balaam was thinking he was going to take the money. And he was going to curse Israel. So why did Christ stop him from that? Why not just let him do what he wants to do? Why did Christ stand in Balaam's way with a drawn sword in his hand? Because that means he's going to kill him. So why does God do that? At least he's giving us the the inclination. Not inclination, that would be wrong. That's a humanistic way of explaining it. He's given us the inference that uh, this is a serious condition. Why not just let Balaam go and curse Israel? Why not just step aside? Why not let Balaam take the treasure? Why not let Balaam forfeit his life as God defines life and death? Why not just say, okay, you're going to curse Israel. I'm going to curse you. Uh, you're headed to Matthew 25:41, Revelation 20:14, Revelation 20:10. Note that I answered the question, didn't I? Inside the question, how did I do it? Christ's name is what? Salvation. Christ is an adversary to death. He's an adversary to the lake of fire destination. Going there is not something that is easy to do, believe it or not. You have to intend to go there. And I had four why not questions there for those counters in the audience. Those of you who have been listening for a while 
when I've already begun to compare Exodus 4, 24 through 26. By a while, I mean, my goodness, however long we've been doing this. 23 years. For me, it's been a lot longer than that. But put aside, it's been 23 years. That's unbelievable. I, I didn't always look this way. Just thought I'd tell you. This is a recent occurrence. <sighs> Sadly. So Exodus 4, 24 through 26, that is what? That is Zipporah and Moses, and Christ comes and stands before Moses. He is the husband of blood because of the circumcision. Moses was under threat of death because of circumcision, knowing why this this is so, why Christ came to Moses when Moses was uh, moving towards Egypt with Zipporah. They had had not circumcised their, their sons. How old were their sons? Ask that, answer that question. But ha- having... Um, Exodus 4 understood that that situation understood because Christ came again there and in the very similar circumstances that explains Numbers 22. So look at circumcision and look at Balaam trying to figure out the cur- the 12 3 uh, 12 1 through 3 cursing and the circumcision of of uh, Moses' sons has a relationship. And of course, we got Joshua 5.13. And it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, a man stood opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand and Joshua went to him and said, are you for us or for our adversaries? The man said, no. Figure that out. But as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth, to the dust, and worshipped. Once again, this is Christ came to Moses, Christ came to Joshua, Christ comes to Balaam. So those three are tied together. And understanding that will help you figure out all of this, I hope. And that's the point of Numbers 22. Jesus God, Christ, comes with a sword drawn in his hand, drawn in his hand to stop Balaam. Balaam has with him... Two witnesses. Count them. Two. Probably just a coincidence. Should have been three or four, but it's only two. Happenstance. Except there's no such thing as happenstance or coincidence in Scripture. Luck is an absolute incongruity to omniscience. So, okay, where are we? Moses, Balaam, Joshua have a similar experience with Christ. Joshua's response was to go fall on his face and worship the Creator God, the one true God. Uh, Balaam also fell on his faith. Zipporah, though, and Balaam needed to see the severity, the consequences. Joshua did not. Obviously, refusing to circumcise Moses' two sons, son, sorry, and the Genesis 12, 1 through 3 principle have something that coincides or correlates. So that failure to circumcise and that intention to curse Israel has some kind of relationship. Keep that in mind while I pretend to advance. Okay, hopefully everyone caught the small clues. Christ's very name is salvation. So that's a clue. He comes. He doesn't send an angel. Lots of commentaries will tell you that he sent some angel. He did not. This is him. This is Christ himself. This is 126 Elohim, the us. Moses and Balaam were in danger for the same reason. Circumcision and Israel are both attached to Christ. Moses is the husband of blood. Christ is the husband of blood. Calls himself the husband of blood. 
It's his blood that saves us. Israel is the firstborn of God, Exodus 4.22. Christ is the image of the invisible God, and therefore he's the firstborn of all creation. Christ is, is God the firstborn. Israel is the firstborn of God. Christ is God the firstborn. Uh, Colossians 1, 5, John 1, 1 through 5, John 1, 14. As an aside, Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection of the dead. You could say that Christ is the firstborn of the resurrection. That would be perfectly legitimate. God is the firstborn of creation and God is the first fruits, the firstborn of the resurrection. Christ is both of those. Note creation and resurrection. Those are two unimaginable things or stages, if you want to think of them that way. Creation has passed. You heard me say that over and over again. Creation has ended. There's no more creation. Conservation of energy mass. There's a sixth day. Information can't be destroyed. Law of information. Creation passed on the sixth day. There is no more creating. Genesis 131. The magnitude of creation, uh, the complexity that is in the creation is unimaginable. How much information is required to create what he created? You can't even th- begin to think of it. Only the mind of the omniscient God can know who that, that can know all the things that He created. Again, the information is an uncalculable number. Just the human brain—they're beginning to figure out how complicated the human brain is. They're comparing it to the universe. Many, many theologians and philosophers have thought that the that the universe and the human brain had some kind of, uh, yes, yeah, some kind of connection. Absolutely right. The, the, the human brain is just filled. The, the, it's extraordinary. How many human brains has he made? How many plants? How many pieces of dust? How many electrons? How many photons? Just amazing. The, the complexity, how much information it cannot be. The human brain cannot even begin to think of it. And resurrection happens to be exactly the same as creation because he's going to resurrect all of this. He's going to restore all of this. The information required to resurrect every living ruach, nefesh, shaya, being is also an incomputable number. The only one who can know it is the one who does it. The one who is the resurrection, who is the life, who is the light of life, John eleven twenty five, John eight twelve. Resurrection also is going to end, just as creation ended. Resurrection will end. After that, the judgment, judgment seat of Christ, or the judgment of the great white throne. My advice is for you to pick the judgment of the seat of Christ. The judge, though, he's going to judge in both conditions. The judge has got to know all things and be able to do what? To search the minds and the hearts of everyone who sins, angel and man. He's got to be able to do it. In order to cast angels in the lake of fire, he's got to know the thoughts of every single angel that goes into the lake of fire. All of that's evidentiary. And the same thing was true with the hearts of, of, of mankind. Notice how I said it. He has to search the minds and hearts of angels and men does not have to search the minds and hearts of animals. Why not? But do the math on how much information the judge has to know. You can use your phones on that. Get back to me later. Hopefully, that is enough material to lead you to the mercy of Christ. 
He's an adversary to death. He came with sword, sword drawn to bring Balaam to repentance. See Numbers 22:34. And Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned, for I did not know that you stood in the way against me. Uh, I, I, I am evil in your sight. I will turn back. That's what Balaam said. How's he doing there? Balaam essentially there quotes uh, Genesis 12.3 at Numbers 24.9. Balaam has the Holy Spirit of God come upon him. Numbers 24.2. Numbers 22.38. Also, these are profound admissions from Balaam that he does. The four prophecies of Balaam are immovably fixed in Scripture. What he said is in Scripture. So, again, Balaam is a complex man. He's reminiscent of the old prophet of uh, 1 Kings 13. Though Balaam is far more variegated. You can look up 2 Peter 2.15, Jude 11, and Revelation 2.14. Balaam is a difficult person in Scripture to understand. And with all that said, Balaam and the female donkey is an astonishing piece of Scripture. Unbelievable. Jesus Christ comes to Balaam and the female donkey and the two witnesses. This alone, again, elevates the event. God has come here. This is the Word made flesh. He has come. Not a lesser angel. Not any angel. This is God says, I'm coming. Balaam and the two witnesses do not see Jesus Christ with a sword. But the female donkey does see Jesus Christ with a sword. The donkey turns and went off the path that Balaam was traveling and goes into the field. Why does the female donkey do that when she sees Christ with a sword? Is she afraid of her creator because Christ is her creator? She's not afraid of him. She can't be. Is she fearful for her life? Is Christ going to kill her? No. Expand the question then. Are there any animals ever terrified, frightened, scared of their creator, Jesus Christ? No, none ever. So why did the female donkey run into the field? Off the road. Leave the narrow path. What is she thinking? What's her motive? Balaam struck the donkey to turn her back onto the road. Balaam was insistent that she continued on the road. He's insistent that he gets to the treasure, that he gets to curse Israel. That's what he's trying to do. That goes back to uh, verse 22 of Numbers 22. But Christ blocks the narrow path between the vineyard and the wall, and the donkey crushes Balaam's foot against the wall. Why does the donkey do that? First, she runs in the field. That was strategy number one. Strategy number two, when he strikes her and he says, we're going to keep going, and she breaks his foot. Uh, why not run into the vineyard? She's obviously accelerating the process, isn't she? First time running into the field didn't work, so I've got to do something different. What does crushed mean? Define crushed, because she crushed his foot. I propose that crushed means crushed. An adult donkey can weigh anywhere between 250. Some of them get as high as 700 pounds, but most of them are between 250 and 500 pounds. So let's assume that she's 500 pounds, considering she's carrying an adult man and his provisions. And I think that she completely fractured Balaam's foot. Multiple fractures. She smashed his foot against a, a wall. That's her plan. 
And Balaam, though, because these are what for Balaam? What is he trying to get him to do? Stop. Stop. Turn back. He ain't going to do it. He ain't going to do it, baby. Won't relent. Crippling Balaam's foot didn't work. So now Jesus Christ goes further. He places himself into a narrow place where it is impossible to turn to the right or the left. But let's go to the word impossible. It says no way, but I'm going to say impossible. Excuse me. When the female donkey saw this, turning to the right was not an option, nor was turning to the left. She lays down. She just says, I ain't moving. You're not going forward. You got a bad foot, get out and limp. And Balaam was really angry about that, and he struck her with his staff. And I want to know about these two witnesses. What are they doing here? Are they on horses? Or are they on donkeys? Or are they on foot? What did their animals do? If they had animals. They're not mentioned. But there's two of these guys. Anyway, Peter denied Christ three times. Oh, wait. After Balaam struck the female donkey three times, the Lord God of creation opened the mouth of the donkey. Opened the mouth of the donkey. He just did it. After three times. He's got to wait for that third time. He even says so. The donkey saw me and turned aside from me these three times. What's he saying there about the donkey? Verse uh, 33. What exactly does open the mouth of the donkey entail, imply, or require? Physiologically, what, what happened? He opened the mouth of the donkey. There's all kinds of things here. Obviously, if the infinite creator opened her mouth, what does that say about her mouth? It's an if-then. It's basic logic. If if the mouth had to be opened by the infinite creator, then what was the condition of her mouth? Her mouth was closed. Her mouth was closed. Now, how many questions you got? A thousand. And yes, I have contemplated the many jokes that are now available to me. <laughs> and the temptation overwhelmed me. I didn't really put up much of a fight here. <laughs> For example, why did he open her mouth? What was he thinking? <laughs> How difficult was it to close her mouth again? I think I know. <laughs> I'm thinking very difficult, maybe impossible. I'll be here all week, folks. So Anyway. This is stunning information. Jesus Christ opened the mouth of the donkey. Again, repeat the central question. When was the mouth of the donkey closed? When were the mouths of all the animals closed? Now, I know I got about minor birds, and I know about parrots, and I've even seen dogs say, I love you. And so I understand that. But that's not what happened here. That's a much lower level. That's mimicry. This was not mimicry. So start thinking about your timeline. When was the mouths of the animals closed? Timeline starts with Genesis 1.20. Where in that timeline did these animals lose? uh, I'm sorry, lose is not the answer. When did they stop this? When did God close their mouths? In any event, Jesus Christ opened this animal's mouth. To kind of rephrase, were the mouths open in the garden? 
when Adam named them, Genesis uh, 2, 19 through 20, did they know their names? Did they communicate with them? They're in Eden. Everything's perfect. Everything's good. Do they have the ability to communicate? Genesis 9, 1 through 2. So God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, and the fear and dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth, every bird of the air, and all of the creatures of the sea. I've got a note to read Isaiah. I know why. Isaiah 11. How am I doing here? I'm doing okay. Not great. Kurt will uh, he'll edit out all that stuff that stopped us. Isaiah 11, 6-9. The wolf also shall dwell in the, with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young ones shall lie down together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole. The weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord. That's what stops all of this. Okay. Isaiah 11, 6 uh, through 9 describes a universal peace that comes when the rod in the branch, Isaiah 11, 1, and the star in the scepter. Balaam calls Christ the star in the scepter. Isaiah calls him the rod in the, bland, in the branch. So you have this relationship between Isaiah 11 and Numbers 24, 17. Um, the king of kings, Revelation 19, 16. When, when Christ takes his throne in the millennium, we have this condition that I just read in Isaiah 11. This peace comes to the animals. All animals return to their Edenic state, Eden state. And fear and dread of man ends. That started in Genesis 9, 1 through 2. It ends when the millennium, when Christ comes as King of Kings. Why did God put fear and dread into the animals after the flood? One thing's obvious. He knew man would be evil. So if the closing of the mouse began at Genesis 9 and it ends at Revelation 20, that's the millennium, and an argument can be made that the closing of the mouse occurred at Genesis 3.23, that is when, of course, God drove Adam and Eve out of the garden. And the garden, of course, was completely encapsulated until post-flood. But all the way to the flood, there's nothing can get into the garden. So the animals in the garden, of course, are absolutely pristine. That's who got on the ark, by the way. They were uncontaminated. Um, the closing of the mouth, Genesis 3.23, is a distinct event from the fear and the dread of, the, uh, of Genesis 9. Probably it would be more accurate to say it this way. If the closing of the mouse occurred at Genesis 3.23 when he drove out Adam and Eve and put up that barrier around of fire, the same kind of fire, the wall of fire, if you want to think of it this way, is going to happen for Israel at Basra. So someday I'll cover that again. But if I have the mouths closing at 3.23 and the fear and dread occurring at Genesis 9.1, and both of those, therefore, though, would end at Revelation 20, the millennial kingdom, the thousand years. That means there's a dramatic change coming. And it describes it again in Isaiah 11. Uh, uh, I believe uh, Ezekiel 35. 
could be wrong about that. It could be 34. But there's a dramatic change coming to the animals. The suffering of the animals is going to end, finally be stopped, at least the ones that made it through the tribulation. Now, the others, of course, as you know, I believe, are clearly immortal, and they are, they are awaiting resurrection. We have to decide when are they resurrected. I have a theory. I'll explain it someday. Not, obviously, in the next month. As an aside here, well, let me say this. They're, the capability of the Edenic or the original state is restored to them. Thank you for the hands. Ten minutes I've got. I've got to go. And I want to emphasize that. They've had these capabilities. They had them when they were created. But they have been, they have been set aside. They, their mouths have been closed. Uh, and they, animals have unquestionably suffered the most of the three dominions. The angelic, the animal, and the mankind dominions. The animals are the ones that have suffered the most. Unbelievable suffering. How much more will the God of justice reward them for that? Will he annihilate them? Is that your view? And you see, our bodies are going to be changed, 1 Corinthians 15, 50 through 55. Therefore, it's only logical that he's going to do what to the bodies of the animals, 1 Corinthians 15, 42 through 43. He's going to change them too. He says so, 15, uh, 39 of 1 Corinthians. They will also be raised in glory. Raised in glory. Psalm 36, 5 through 7. He has mercy. He has faithfulness. He has righteousness. He has justice. He has loving kindness for his animals. And man, Psalm 36, 6 and 7. So what do you suppose raised in glory means? How much glory is glory there? The point is, yea, a point. Finally, page 14, I got to a point. Golly, I should get some kind of merit badge. The point is, is that Balaam's donkey was restored to her Edenic state. In Numbers 22, he did it. Boom. Partially, not completely, but definitely with respect, he exposed the, the capabilities that she will have and that she had, or that the original species had. He is the great restorer. And he did that for her, but he really did it for another reason as well. And the result of it is, is that she now can converse and communicate with Balaam, who struck her three times. And she and Balaam have this unbelievable conversation. What have I done to you that you have struck me these three times, she said. That's a rhetorical question in part, in a sense. It's really nuanced. How intelligent is this donkey? That's her restored state. And so be prepared for that. In any event, Balaam is listening to this donkey say to him, what have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? She can count to three. She can ask him for his motivation. How do you explain yourself to me? And Balaam is not surprised. So again, there's something about Balaam that we have got to figure out at some point. He's not surprised. He's not shocked. He responds... Because you have mocked me. That's the literal. Because you have mocked me. That's why he beat her. Never mind his crushed foot. Balaam is wanting to kill his donkey with a sword because she mocked him. 
She insulted him. Does that make any sense? How did the donkey make fun of Balaam by crushing his foot laying down and uh, going off into the field? The donkey points out that she and Balaam have been around together for a long time. That she and this and she asks him essentially, yeah, is this something that she's uh, ever done before? So, how's her memory? Yeah, this is her restored state. So the donkey has a high level of consciousness here and self-awareness and all the essentials of existence. Uh, and Balaam concedes. And I want you to consider the complexity of this. He says, no, you've never done this before. And that was the end of the discussion. She prevailed. Right? And so consider the intelligence of the donkey. She is in a temporary, probably fractional, raised in glory, Edenic condition. I don't know how long this lasted for her. But I imagine the relationship she had with Balaam never was the same after that. Can you imagine if one of your animals that you rely on, a horse usually, but even a dog, began to speak to you in a cognitive sense, began to give you, ask you questions that you had not considered? That is the Edenic state, I believe. It's being displayed here. This is a glimpse of Isaiah 11, 6-9. Yes, they're going to live together. Thank you. But... Uh, there's more to it than you can ever imagine. They're raised in glory. How much more are we going to be changed? How much will they be changed? Who suffered the most? Mankind has suffered, but it's at their own uh, hand. Animals are suffering at the hand of, of, of man. The original order, Genesis 2, 19, 20, 131. Why did God put this into his word? Why is this account here? Why do we have to know about Balaam and the donkey. What's the point of that? Well, clearly the point is what? It's Ecclesiastes 3.18. It connects to the test. Do you know that animals are immortal, that animals will be restored, that animals have a raised in glory, that they have a condition that we cannot even understand, this incredible reward that is waiting for them? A reward is waiting for us. We don't deserve it. The reward is also waiting for the animals. Again, Psalm 36, 5 through 7. Notice that the donkey does not reveal that she can see Jesus Christ. That's Mark 1. She doesn't reveal it. She doesn't say to him, I saw Jesus Christ. She just argues with him. Never says in that argument, the reason I didn't do this is because there's God himself with a sword right there. You ought to know that, dummy. She doesn't say that. I've never done this before. So when I did this, it must be something really serious. Christ had to reveal himself to Balaam. Balaam bows his head, falls on his face. Good response. I hope I do the same thing. I promise you I will do the same thing. <laughs> Balaam now knows the donkey knew that Balaam was in grave danger. Now he can see God with a sword. And she essentially risked her own life to save his. Who's, how, how is her life at risk? Who is threatening to kill her? Well, Scripture reserves it. Reveals it. God then asks Balaam her question. Why have you struck your donkey three times? Behold, I have come out to stand against you. Not an angel. This is God himself has come out against Balaam. 
Behold indicates a great doctrinal truth has been given. She said, Behold, the way of Balaam is perverse, he says. What is the perverse way of Balaam? The bold continues. Behold continues. There's more to the behold. It is a great doctrinal truth that the donkey saw Christ. And surely he would have struck the Balaam dead if she had not intervened. And he would have let her live. When God says, I'm going to let you live, what does he mean? What are the implications? He says, I will let her live. Does that have annihilation anywhere in it? It does not. Will Christ annihilate this donkey? What are you, an idiot? Sorry, not really. <laughs> Any donkey, she is innocent, but she's willing to die for Balaam knowing that he struck her. And if he had, had a sword, he would have been, she would have been killed by it. That takes you to Proverbs 12.10. Look it up yourself. Balaam confesses, I am evil in your sight. I will turn back. Balaam eventually blesses Israel. He does not curse Israel. So the Genesis 12.1-3 principle is not applied to him. Balaam blessed Israel, wait for it, three times. For every time that he struck the donkey. Numbers 24.10. He blessed them bountifully. Balaam, again, a complicated man, similar to Cain, similar to the old prophet. But for today, the female donkey is is the focus. This story is in here not because of Balaam. It's in here because of the female donkey in Ecclesiastes 3.18. It's evidence. It's prima facie. Evidence. Facia. Evidence of the immortality of animals. They will be raised in glory. Eventually, we'll have to answer why God puts this barrier, this veil between animals and man. Why he closes them out. You've got to know when he did it. Obviously, man would do evil in your sight, and hand has, but there's other reasons. One of them is by closing the mouths of the animals, he proves that they are immortal. And see you September 12th, unless the Lord, if the Lord tarries and the creeks don't rise.